We hope you enjoy listening to this weekly podcast from Lifeline Church. Find out more by visiting lifelinechurch.co.uk. Great. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, We are diving back into uh, our King series today. As Nick said, keep the questions coming if if anything pops into your mind as we we go through this. I also just want to point out that Nick and I clearly got the beige jumper memo this morning. Um, So, uh, yes, we're we're very coordinated. That's all good. Um, Great. So... Just a bit of a a recap of where we're up to so far in Kings. You can cast your minds back. Um, Solomon has become king. Uh, He's inherited the throne from from his father, David. He's been given this amazing gift of wisdom from God. Um, He's used his wisdom. He's established his his government. He's kind of set lots of things in place. He started building projects. and last time, Jamie talked us through the temple. So this, this concept of the temple, this, this building that existed many, many years ago, but actually has relevance for our lives today and how through Jesus, we are actually now being built into a temple by the Holy Spirit. Um, so we're going to be moving on to 1 Kings chapter 7 today. So what, what happens in 1 Kings chapter 7? Not a lot really happens in, in 1 Kings chapter 7 in terms of moving the story forward. Uh, Solomon builds a palace and he completes the work of the temple. That's, that's kind of the main sort of shorthand of the chapter. But um, there's a few things that, that we want to pull out uh, this morning. And as we've been, been talking about, as we've gone through this whole series, our real expectation is not just that we hear about these historical facts, these things that happened in the past, but actually God is speaking to them, uh, speaking to us through them. Um, and actually, when, when this stuff was written, um, the, the Israelites, the, the, the people of God, really believed that the word of God, uh, th- this historical book, was prophetic. It was, it was seen in that prophetic way. And we believe the same thing today. So we want to hear what God is saying to us today. So we're going to read um, a little bit from 1 Kings 7. I'm not going to read word for word through the chapter this morning. So you feel free to find it in your Bibles. But if you're trying to read along, you might get a bit confused. So I'm going to skip through some bits. There's a lot of detail in this chapter. Um, But actually, we're going to kick off with uh, the previous uh, chapter, just the last verse of chapter 6. And we're going to move into the first bit of of 1 Kings 7. So feel free to find it um, in your Bibles if you would like to. So last verse of of chapter 6. The entire building, this is referring to the temple, was completed in every detail by mid-autumn. In the month of Bull, during the 11th year of his reign. So it took seven years to build the temple. And then moving on to, to chapter 7. It took Solomon 13 years, however, to complete the construction of his palace. He built the palace of the forest of Lebanon. It was 150 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high, with four rows of cedar columns supporting trimmed cedar beams. It was roofed with cedar above the beams that rested on the columns. He made a hall of pillars 75 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet wide. In front of it was a porch, and in front of that were pillars and an overhanging roof. He built the throne hall, the hall of justice, where he was to judge, and he covered it with cedar from floor to ceiling, and the palace in which he was to live set farther back was similar in design. Solomon also made a palace like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, 
whom he had married. So Solomon's doing a lot of building. Um, he's completed the temple, and he's kind of just really, really going to town. And, and this picture is kind of a, a bit of an illustration of that. He's building a house for himself. He's building a palace, but this isn't just a house for the king. It's a bit like if you imagine the Palace of Westminster and you know the House of Parliament. It's that kind of deal. Like It's a whole government headquarters, and it's like this massive, massive complex. And he goes into so much detail, and just a little bit of a window into it uh, in what I just read. But it really is... Uh, really is quite opulent, quite incredible, lots of expensive materials. Um, all through Kings, we get these clues as to uh, what's going on in Solomon's heart. Um, the narrator never sort of explicitly says, ah, Solomon's making some really bad decisions here, he's doing the wrong thing. But as we've looked at in, in previous sessions of Kings, there are these moments where you kind of get a window, ah, he's, he's kind of making an interesting choice there. Is that really what, what God wants? Um, we've had the marriage to the daughter of Pharaoh, uh, king of Egypt. So again, making this alliance, dodgy alliance with a king uh, who, you know, Egypt were the nation that enslaved Israel and, and somehow Solomon's trying to make an alliance here. Um, we've got the worshipping at the high places. Don't you if you remember that, that Solomon did this a while back. Um, and then he enslaved the people of Israel so he gets 30,000 slaves to build his temple, which again, it's like you know, Israel have come out of slavery and now he's enslaving them again. Um, and again, we, we, we just look at these decisions that Solomon's making and little by little we see, okay, he's kind of making some interesting choices, maybe some bad choices here. Um, and I kind of feel that, that there's a similar picture we get as we see this elaborate, lavish building project that Solomon is embarking. And remember it says, it took seven years to build the temple but he took 13 years to build his house. Now, you can't necessarily look at that and say, well, that's a, a condemnation there from the, the narrator. But to put those two sentences right next to each other, it seems to be subtly implying something about his, his decision-making. Um, there's nothing necessarily simple about this over-the-top building project. But again, it's a subtle clue, perhaps, as to his, his heart. Um, Lots of people believe the book of Ecclesiastes was also written by Solomon. At least it, it describes the reign of, of King Solomon. And when you read Ecclesiastes, you get a bit more of a window into kind of what was going on at this time, what, what Solomon was doing. It says in Ecclesiastes 2, I also tried to find meaning by building huge homes for myself and by planting beautiful vineyards. I made gardens and parks, filling them with all kinds of fruit trees. I bought slaves, both men and women. I collected great sums of silver and gold. I hired wonderful singers, both men and women, and had many beautiful concubines. I had everything a man could desire, so I became greater than all who'd lived in Jerusalem before me, and my wisdom never failed me. Anything I wanted, I would take. I denied myself no pleasure. Kind of interesting, interesting words there. Um, and there's a big contrast that, that I've noticed here between how David went about things, so remember Solomon's father David, and how Solomon goes about things. So David was king before Solomon, if we remember. Um, he wasn't a perfect man. He made lots of bad decisions himself. He, he you know, messed up many, many times. But he's someone that God describes consistently throughout the scripture as a man after my own heart. And there's something really interesting about David compared to Solomon. For most of David's life, he was living in, in danger. He faced many wars. He fought many battles. 
He was often attacked. He spent chunks of his life running away, like on the run from people, uh, first from, from King Saul, and then from his son, who tried to take the throne from him and, and you know, kicked him out of the palace, and David had to run away. So he faced all of this external danger and peril and difficulty. But the thing that characterized David's heart was that he drew this immense sense of comfort and, and satisfaction and safety from God. Psalm uh, 63 says this, your unfailing love is better than life itself. How I praise you. You satisfy me more than the richest feast because you are my helper. I sing for joy in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your strong right hand holds me securely. So this psalm was actually written when he was running away, when he was in, in one of the most dangerous situations in his life. Psalm 27 says, This one thing I asked of the Lord, the thing I seek most, is to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, delighting in the Lord's perfections and meditating in his temple. For he will conceal me there when my troubles come. He will hide me in his sanctuary. And another interesting psalm, this isn't written by David, but it was written about him. It says, Lord, remember David and all that he suffered. He made a solemn promise to the Lord. He vowed to the mighty one of Israel, I will not go home. I will not let myself rest. I will not let my eyes sleep until I find a place to build a house for the Lord. So David is so committed to building this temple, to this vision God has given him, that he he goes without personal comforts, and, and he bears with that. Whereas Solomon, on the other hand, goes to these extreme lengths to provide comfort and luxury for himself. So Solomon's kingdom is, in a way, it's kind of the high point of Israel in terms of of influence, power, wealth. Um, And again, this isn't wrong necessarily, but perhaps in those times of of peace, of outward peace, the bad decisions are harder to, to notice. Anything I wanted, I would take. I denied myself no pleasure. So I believe although there's peace in the kingdom of Solomon, there's kind of a war raging for his heart. There's this tussle going on, and it's almost like God's kind of asking, where is your heart? Is it after me, or is it after the things? There is a love for God in Solomon's heart. We read about it. It says he had a love for God there at the beginning. But there's clearly also a love for things, surrounding himself with with comforts, with beauty, with luxury. Not always necessarily completely sinful, but it sets the conditions for his downfall, which comes later on. So the first question I want us to consider this morning is, in what ways might we be building our house at the expense of the kingdom? Or in other words, are we trying to create comfort for ourselves rather than letting God do that for us? Um, When I was a young Christian, I I felt like God kept asking me to do things that were out of my comfort zone that I I didn't want to do. Things that were, were difficult, whether it was pray for this person or, or have this comf- uh, difficult conversation with, with someone or serve in this way that, that I was like, well, that, that's out of my comfort zone, God. And I came to the conclusion that God just doesn't want me to be comfortable. He just wants me to be miserable. He wants me to serve him, just get my head down and, and just live in constant discomfort. But then I had this revelation that that's not at all how he feels about me. In fact, God desperately wants us to be comfortable, but he wants to comfort us himself rather than have us engineer this sense of comfort around us. And some of the ways, I don't know about you, but some of the ways that I do that in my own life are perhaps trying to guard my time a little bit, 
um, trying to, to say no to things or, or kind of organize my time so that I don't have to do anything that puts me out of my comfort zone instead of laying my time before Jesus and saying, what would you have me do with this weekend? What would you have me do with this evening? Sometimes I might avoid um, difficult conversations or might avoid correcting someone or, or I might let things slide because it's just too uncomfortable to deal with it. I just put it out of my mind. I might opt out of serving or I might opt out of showing love to someone or praying for someone because, again, it's just too uncomfortable. It's just a little bit awkward. And this isn't about God condemning us and saying, come on, guys, you need to do more. You need to do more. It's an invitation into partnership uh, with him. It's just that simple question. God, is there anything you're putting your finger on um, where I can trust you, where I can invite you in and step beyond maybe what I'm, I'm used to doing. There's a wonderful story that Lisa Adams told a number of years ago. It's always stuck in my mind, um, where she was learning about God's healing power, and she's getting really excited uh, by the stuff she was reading in the Bible about how Jesus healed people and, and set them free from stuff. She was like, wow, I could do that. I could be involved in that. And then the thought came in, into her head, what about my friend who's, who's deaf? Um, she works in school, she's a teacher, and she has a colleague. Um, who, who's deaf, and she thought, what about my, my, my friend? And suddenly, the excitement vanished. It was like, oh my goodness, I, I can't do this. Suddenly, what, what seemed so cool when she was reading it in scripture felt like uh, it was impossible. Um, but she spoke to a friend of hers who encouraged her, why don't you just ask God for an opportunity to speak to this, this lady? So she did that, and uh, she got to school one day and found herself in an empty staff room, which never happens, with this lady, and they're there having this conversation. She's like, oh my goodness, this is the moment God's answered my prayer. He's inviting me to, to do this. But she just, she just couldn't bring herself to offer that. She's like, how do I even start this conversation? How do I offer to pray for this lady? Will she be offended? Will that ruin our friendship? This lady was a Muslim. You know, how is she going to understand who Jesus is? And time went by, and the conversation went by, and, and finally the lady walked out of the room, and she thought, oh my goodness, I've missed it. The opportunity's gone. I've not done it. I've disobeyed God. And then the thought came to her, okay, I'm just going to ask God, if this is really something that you want me to do, then bring me another opportunity. So she prayed that prayer. And sure enough, the lady comes rushing back into the room, saying, oh my goodness, Lisa, there was a Bible in my classroom. How did the Bible get into my classroom? I'm a maths teacher. Why would there be a Bible in my classroom? What even is the Bible? Tell me about the Bible. <laughs> um, and so it's like God, God laid it on a plate. And, uh, and she knew in that moment that, that this was her opportunity. And she had a conversation with this lady about the Bible, about who Jesus was, about her own faith, about how Jesus died, and kind of shared the gospel with her. And, uh, and eventually she said, well, you know, I believe God heals today. Would you like me to pray for you? And this lady was like, yeah, I'd love for you to pray for me. I'd love to be healed. So she prayed for this lady. And the lady encountered God in that moment and had a real tangible experience of God. She wasn't completely healed, but she said she felt this tingling all throughout her body that she's never felt before. And, and she felt the presence of God. Um, incredible story. But what I love about that story is it just shows the, the mercy of God, the gentleness of God. Here's Lisa doing something she doesn't want to do in a million years. There's so many reasons why she didn't want to do that. And yet God said, if you just lean into me, if you partner with me, I will open up those opportunities. I can think of so many times in my life where there's things that I have found hard, 
But the difference God makes is, is he just works with me in it, and he opens that door. He gives me that opportunity. I'm sure lots of us can think of, of situations like that. Um, just another story that comes to mind. I remember being uh, in a work meeting. I was going to a work meeting. I, in my job, <clears throat> I do quite a lot of work with government and, and Department of Health, and I end up in, in these meetings with policymakers and different people. And um, I was quite early into my role, and I was going to this meeting at the Department of Health. It was a whole day meeting, and I really didn't want to do it. I was like, God, why do I have to do this? I felt like an imposter. I was like, I'm, I'm not going to know what to say. I've got a whole day in this. I really, really don't want to do it. And I remember I came out of Westminster Station, and I was early, and I was walking around the block just like, you know, just kind of trying to get myself together before going into this meeting. And I was praying. And it's just like God changed my perspective. He gave me a completely different perspective on the situation and said, you know, do you realize this is what I've given you to do in this moment? This isn't just some random task. This is where I've placed you to be. And he also said, I'm going to be in that room. Look, look for me. You know, I'm not going into that room on my own, but God is already in there waiting for me. And it completely changed my perspective on that situation. Again, it was something that was out of my comfort zone. It was something I didn't want to do, but God met me in that place. He is our comforter. He is the one who works with us. The Holy Spirit is the one who works with us in those situations. And David knew this truth profoundly. But if we're trying to secure our own comforts, if we're trying to create a nice life for ourselves by making decisions and excluding ourselves from opportunities, we're not letting him do that role, which is his to do. So that's our first, our first thing to ponder. Cool. So moving on through the story, back to chapter 7. Um, what happens next? King Solomon hires a man to do a bunch of metal work and bronze work in the temple for him. Um, so it's a guy called Hiram. There was another character called Hiram, if you've uh, remembered, you probably haven't, it was a minor kind of point. Um, there was a king called Hiram that he got a bunch of cedar from. This is not the same Hiram, this is a different guy. But he's a metal worker, he's a, he's a bronze worker, and he's incredibly skilled at what he does. Um, it says, King Solomon asked for a man called Hiram to come from Tyre. He was extremely skillful and talented in any work in bronze, and he came to do all the metal work for King, king Solomon. I often wonder in these situations, um, I think back as well to the building of the tabernacle in the desert when there's particular people got anoints to, to do the, the craft work for that, that building. How intimidated must they have been in, in doing this role, building the temple of God? Um, last year, Nick Canella asked me to do a, a painting for their, their uh, dining room. And I just remember thinking, it's a big painting. It was like a kind of meter by meter this could go horribly wrong. Like, it's hard to ignore a meter-by-meter meter painting. Lots of people are going to be eating in this room. I could get this horribly wrong. And I felt this sense of weight, this almost sense of intimidation. I wonder how this guy must have felt in that situation. But um, Solomon sees him. He sees the skill that he has, and he commissions him to do um, the work. I don't know if he's just faithfully getting on with his work in, in this obscure part of Israel, and, and Solomon just picks him and chooses him, him for the work. Um, Jamie challenged us last time at the end of the talk. Um, he reminded us that, that we as a community are the modern-day expression of the temple. Um, it says in Ephesians 2, and in him you too, that's us as a community, that's the church, being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives 
by his spirit. And one of the questions Jamie asked was, how are we playing a role in building the temple of God? I kind of want to just dwell for a little bit on that question because I think it's, it's quite key. Um, God wants every single one of us sitting here in this room to have a role to play. Um, none of us are excluded in, in this job. Like I said, Solomon handpicked this guy. He chose him. He said, I see what you have to offer. I see your gifting, and I want you. I want you involved in this work. And God is saying the same thing to every single one of us. He's looking at us and saying, I want you in the great work that I'm doing. I want your unique expression. I want your life experience. We've all had different life experiences. I want that spark that I've placed inside of you for the building of my house. And you may not think that you've got anything particularly special to offer. You might actually feel maybe like you don't really fit. Maybe you're looking at this community and you're like, is everybody like me? I'm a bit different from them. I've got a different background, different set of skills. And yet God has placed something unique inside of each of us that he wants us to put into practice, a role specifically for us in the building of his house. Maybe it's a gift or an ability or a passion that we've discounted. Maybe we thought, that's nothing to do with with following God. I don't need to worry about that. Maybe it's laying dormant for a number of years. Maybe it's a kind of crazy left-field idea. Um, I was thinking, actually, a lot of the... um, Sorry, there's a question. What's our mark to make on the temple of God? A lot of the things that we do as a community have come from kind of slightly left-field ideas. Um, What if we ran a coffee shop on Green Lane? What if we started teaching English to... um, to mums at the school gate who can't, can't learn, can't speak English? What if we renovated a run-down play area for the good of the community? And just another one that popped into my mind as I reflected on this. Um, Alan and Vivian always give birthday cards to, to many of the kids in, in the church, and, and my boys have always had, had cards from them. When they receive those cards, they feel seen. They feel appreciated. They feel a part of this community. I remember even in lockdown, Alan came on his bike and delivered the card to, to my boys. And, and it made such a difference to them. And all of these things are examples of contributing what we have, our ideas, um, to the building of his house. It may not feel particularly spiritual. It may just feel like a hobby, or, or that's part of my work life. That's, that's just in my, my work box. That's nothing to do with... With, with church or the kingdom. But God's saying, I want all in, all have a role to play. Great. So what happens next? Hiram makes a bunch of things uh, for the temple. We're going to run through what he makes. Um, again, not going to go into all the detail. If you want to read it, there's a huge amount of detail in there. Um, but he makes some bronze pillars. They're 27 feet tall. They're huge. Um, and they sit right in front of the temple, and they kind of guard the gates to the entrance. He makes something called a bronze sea, which is like a massive basin of water, and it's resting on these balls here. Uh, Quite an incredible, impressive thing. So he casts this whole thing in bronze. He makes some stands on wheels that, again, for the washing of the priests when they prepare themselves for all the work they're going to be doing in the temple. Uh, He makes some utensils, including the lampstands, some shovels, some pots, Um, And then he does the remainder of the gold work for the interior of the house. So these incredible gold doors that are uh, made out of this 
this gold that was melted down by Hiram and placed on the, on the doors. And Jamie showed us a video last time of, of the temple and what it looks like. Go back and, and look at it. If you haven't seen it, it's this incredible structure. But these are the things that, that Hiram, Hiram makes for the temple. And then we get to the last line of chapter 7. And this is the last line we're going to finish thinking about today. And, um, and it's this. So King Solomon finished all his work on the temple of the Lord. Then he brought all the gifts his father David had dedicated, the silver, the gold, and the various articles. And he stored them in the treasuries of the Lord's temple. Now this looks like a, a little kind of inconspicuous line at the end of the chapter. It doesn't really capture our attention, but I've been pondering it. Um, and what really stands out to me here is you've had this huge description of the temple. What is the writer drawing our attention back to at this point? I think he's saying, yes, the temple is great. It's beautiful. But whose vision was the temple? He, he brings David back into the picture and draws our attention back to King David, who had this vision for the temple in the first place. The temple was built because of the vision of David. Even before a brick had been laid in the building of the temple, David had dedicated all of these vessels for use in the temple and set them aside, and they're the last thing that Solomon puts in the storehouses. It's as if to say, Yes, this temple is glorious, it's impressive, it's covered with gold, it's got all this amazing metalwork, really, really intricate. But this was David's dream. And um, if you read the book of Samuel, you read about how this idea came about. Um, David has this dream to build a house, and he, he tells God about it. And God says, no, David, you're not going to build a house for me. Your son is going to build a house for me. And David says, okay, I may not get to build this house, but I'm going to do absolutely everything I possibly can to get stuff ready for it without actually building it. And he goes to extreme lengths. He, he draws plans. He gets loads of wood. He gets all of the bronze ready, all of the materials. He dedicates these, these vessels. You get a really vivid picture in 1 Chronicles where it says, and, and 1 Chronicles kind of runs parallel to Kings, and it describes the same events. And it says, David provided large amounts of iron for the nails that would be needed for the doors and the gates and for the clamps, and he gave more bronze than could be weighed. So he even provided iron for the nails of the doors of the gates of the temple. I mean, how much detail do you want to go into in building this? So all of the stuff that we've seen, the intricate forms, the bronze, all this incredible stuff was provided by, by David. And true kingdom vision, when we think about vision in, in, in the sense of what God's doing and kingdom vision, it's like that. It's, it's like David's vision. It sees beyond our lifetime. It goes beyond the span of years that we have on this earth. And there are so many people in scripture that you read about that demonstrated this sense of seeing beyond, the sense of kingdom vision. I'm a part of something greater than myself. I'm, I'm part of something that's going to continue even when I pass away. I'm part of something that I need to, to pass on to the next generation. Moses, when he, he looked over the promised land and knew that he would never live to see it occupied, but he was showing the way for his people to enter the promised land. Paul, in the New Testament, uh, when he says to Timothy, these things that I've taught you, teach them to faithful men 
who will be able to, to teach them to other people. You've got multiple generations there in one sentence. But Paul is thinking beyond himself. He's thinking, what's going to happen to this stuff that God's revealed to me? It needs to be, to be taught. It needs to be passed on to the next generation. John the Baptist saw beyond himself when he said, he must increase, Jesus must increase, and I must decrease. He's part of something greater than his own reputation, than his own uh, sense, of, sense of pride or purpose. And then Jesus had this same vision when he said to his disciples, you will do greater things than I have done. Imagine that, the savior of the world, the man who raised people from the dead, opened the eyes of the blind, saying to us, you will do greater things than I will do. He had that same, that same sense of vision. And this temple was built um, because of the vision of David. Again, these are plans for the temple. Um, these aren't the actual plans for the temple, it's just plans of something that I found. Um, but, but David had that vision. He had that sense of vision. And when it comes to building for God's kingdom, when we, we think about us as a community, us as a body, building his house, working on something greater than ourselves, the choices that we make will determine what the future generations have, have to work with. And, um, and God's church, as we know, it's global, it covers the whole earth, but God's placed us in a specific expression of that church, and that's us, this community in Dagenham, Lifeline Church. And, um, and we've been living out for a number of years the vision that God has given to John in terms of how we are to live. And we've looked at this for a number of weeks. Daniel touched on it yesterday as well, that sense of um, John being called out of a different expression of church and starting to put into practice some of the, the relational living that he saw in the Bible, laying down our lives for one another, serving one another, uh, sharing life, these values that are, are so key to, to how we live practically expressing love, acceptance, and forgiveness. Some of you may have listened to this, this podcast uh, by Jamie, Nick, and, and Ella, Evolution Revolution, but again, it's discussing this whole idea that, that as a community, we need to, to pass on to a new generation these values. We need to live out the things that we've been living in um, as a community. And, and there's a risk that as we do this, we can just be you know, placing those values in a nice little display cabinet or making it into a nice, neat mission statement or a six-week course, whatever it might be, but we don't actually live it out. We don't actually put it into practice. And there was a very challenging call from Daniel last week as well. What, what are we doing with, these, with this inheritance, with these values? Are we living it out? Are we putting it into practice? So the final question is, how can we remain faithful to the vision God has given us? to live out. And I want to kind of explore that through, through this second question, which is, was Solomon faithful to the vision? Um, was Solomon faithful to the vision? Well, on the surface of it, it seems like he did a pretty good job, doesn't it? He, he built this magnificent temple. He spared no expense. He got the greatest guy in the land to come and do the metalwork. It was intricate. It was opulent. It was beautiful. Nothing went wrong. But fast forward a few chapters. Um, actually, we're going to skip ahead a little bit and, and just glimpse, it's a spoiler alert, but into 1 Kings 14. And this is what happens. In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, and that's Solomon's son who became king after him, just five years after Solomon's reign, Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. He took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away 
everything. So five short years after Solomon's reign, which again, remember, was, was characterized by peace, prosperity, already Egypt has wasted no time in coming and, and ransacking the temple and stealing everything from there. Remember, Egypt is the nation that Solomon had tried to build this alliance with by marrying the daughter of Pharaoh, so that kind of didn't really work out very well, did it? Um, and what's the first thing that is stolen from the house of the Lord? It's the last thing that Solomon put into it, which is the treasures that David had, had dedicated. And this is not the end of the matter. In fact, it's the first in a long line of times throughout the story of Kings, and eventually we, we will kind of get there as we look through it, where uh, the temple is, is ransacked and eventually destroyed. So let's just briefly look at what happens. So the stands are stripped, the gold is removed in 2 Kings 16, and the bulls are taken from under the sea. Then the gold is removed from the doors of the house of the Lord in 2 Kings 18. Then the gold vessels and the utensils, the lampstands are all cut up and melted down and used for other stuff. And finally, the temple is burned, the large items of bronze are broken up, and the whole thing is, is returned to rubble. All of Hiram's work, this incredible work, is reduced to nothing throughout the story of kings. And it's almost like that list that we see in this chapter 7 of all the things that were made for the temple one by one, almost in order, are, are kind of done away with. So what went wrong? Why did, why did this happen? What happened to, to the vision here? I think Solomon was faithful to David's plan, but missed David's purpose. Solomon ticked all the right boxes um, in building the temple. He, he completed the IKEA flat pack instructions that David had left for the temple. In fact, he went above and beyond he, he provided more gold, he provided more wood, more bronze. So much so that he needed 30,000 slaves to build it, remember. And then he neatly placed David's treasures in the storehouse. But I think he was missing something. I think he was missing the reason why David wanted to build a temple in the first place. He was missing that heart for God, that vision, that one thing that I will seek after the most important thing in my life. I want to find a dwelling place for the house of the Lord. And again, if we come back to us, there is that risk that we can pursue the outward expression of the things that we do. But we miss that, that driving force, that vision, that, that heart for God, that heart for his kingdom that, that is behind it, that's, that's pushing us forward. We want to live out the vision that God has given us as a church, not just listen to it, not just hear it. And the New Testament is very clear that if we're here as of the word and not doers of the word. The word goes missing. Um, in James it says, hearing the word and not doing it is like looking in a mirror and forgetting what we look like. We don't want to forget the treasures that God has given us, the values that God has given us. In Luke, well, it says Matthew 13 here. Um, <laughs> in Luke or Matthew, I think it is both of them, um, Jesus says the word of God is a bit like seeds that are scattered. And some of those seeds fall on good, store, good soil, some of them fall along the path. But he said that if we don't hold fast the word of God and bear fruit with patience, it's like the seed that falls on the path and the birds of the air 
come and steal it. And that's, that's a metaphor for the enemy coming to steal that word from our hearts. Solomon had neatly put the treasures away in, in the storehouse of the, the house of the Lord. But five years after his reign, um, Pharaoh, which is the great enemy of the people of God throughout Scripture, comes and, and steals them. He ticked all the boxes, but he didn't let it get to his heart. And again, there have been clues all throughout the book of Kings of, again, just where Solomon's heart is maybe going a bit, a bit astray. So how do we avoid this? How do we avoid missing the, the vision? The life of Solomon reminds me of another character that we find in the Gospels. Um, like Solomon, he's, he's a very wealthy man. Um, he's very influential. He's in a position of leadership. And he comes to Jesus. And it's the story of the rich young ruler. You might be familiar. It's found in Luke 18. He comes to Jesus and he asks the million-dollar question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus starts listing the commandments. He says, you know the commandments. You must not commit adultery. You must not murder. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. Honor your father and mother. And the man replies. It's almost like he, he kind of butts in. And he's like, but I've done all of this. I've obeyed all of these commandments from a young man. Tell me something I don't know. And Jesus, it says, when he heard his answer, he said, there is still one thing that you haven't done. Sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. And it says, but when the man heard this, he became very sad, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw this, he said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. I used to read the story and, and think that when Jesus said, one thing you lack, he's kind of saying, there's one more thing that you need to do. One more thing you need to do. Sell all your possessions, give it to the poor, and come follow me, and then you'll be, you'll be sorted. Almost like something was missing from this guy's list of, of his to-do list. But that's not, that's not the point at all. In fact, I think the whole conversation, this whole interaction Jesus is having with this man is about Jesus exposing something that's missing right at the center of this man's life. Because this man had, had many treasures, he had many possessions, he had many things in his life. But he didn't have Jesus. And Jesus is meant to be our treasure. He's meant to be at the center of, of our life. And he was standing in front of this man, inviting him into relationship, inviting him into the, the, this dynamic encounter and, and, and the life that would follow that. And the man couldn't, couldn't do it. Everything else was more important. And it's interesting that, that Jesus lists commandments in this story because anyone who looks at that list of commandments will notice it's an incomplete list. There's commandments missing. Anyone who knows the Jewish scriptures will know there's commandments missing. And in fact, the greatest commandment of all of them is missing from the list. And there's a number of points where people come to Jesus in the Gospels and say, what's the greatest commandment? And he answers very clearly. He says, the greatest commandment is this, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important, love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. What this man doesn't see is that eternal life is not found in doing something. It's not found in adding another string to our bow, another item to our to-do list. Eternal life is found in relationship with God. It's found in love for God. And this is what was missing from his life. And ultimately, the stuff that was filling this man's life was greater for him 
than the man who stood in front of him, the saviour of the world who was inviting him into that relationship. And like this rich man, Solomon had the world at his feet. He had everything. In some ways, he's one of the most disappointing people in, in Scripture. Nowhere else do you see someone with so much potential, so much gifting, so much resources, a peaceful kingdom. It's like everything was poised for this incredible reign. And yet it, it goes south. And all of us have a similar purpose in God. We all have a potential to fulfill. We have a reason why we're created, a reason why God put us into this world. But what gets us over the line, what gets us to a life of faithfulness in God or success in God, is not, it's not intelligence, it's not resources, it's not wisdom, it's not gifting, it's not any of these things. Solomon had all of these things in abundance. What separates us is love. It's that question, where is our, where is our heart? And that was Solomon's undoing. He had a love for God, but it grew cold. So what gives us this heart? Um, the interesting thing about love is that you can't force it. You can't force yourself to love. We can't make ourselves see beauty. We can't make ourselves have a glimpse of the beauty of Jesus, have, have a glimpse of, of who he is for us. And, and after Jesus makes that declaration at the end of this story with the rich young ruler, and he says how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, someone pipes up and says, well, then who can be saved if it's that difficult? Who can be saved? And Jesus says something really, really significant. It's this. He says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. What is impossible with man is possible with God. What an encouraging statement. So what gives us this heart for God? It's coming back to him. It's coming back to God. It's saying, God, I don't have the resources. I can't do it, but you can. Open my eyes. Let me ca catch a sight of, of who you are. Let me be filled with your Holy Spirit. And uh, in future weeks, we're going to look at the moment that the presence of God and, and the Spirit of God fills the temple. But that's ultimately what it's about. It's about him coming and living in us and making that difference. And if we're living out God's vision for us as, as individuals, as a community, that's not going to happen unless we, we catch that glimpse of who he is. Loving others starts with a revelation that he has first loved us. Serving others starts with a, with a revelation that he got down on his hand, hands and knees and washed our feet. And laying down our lives starts with that revelation that he has already laid his, laid his life down for us on the cross. And so all God requires from us is honesty. He doesn't require perfection. David was not perfect. David messed up many, many times. He lived a sinful life. Um, the Psalms are full of, you know, those conflicted emotions where, where David's messed up and he's coming back to God. But the thing that separates David is the fact that he kept coming back to God. He kept coming back to God. What is impossible with man is possible with God. So here's our response for today. A few questions for us to ponder. So in what ways might we be building our own house at the expense of the kingdom? In what ways can we choose to say yes to his promptings over our sense of comfort? Number two, what is our mark to make on the temple of God? How can we contribute to this great work that he's involved us in? 
He's saying he wants us a part of that. Number three, how can we be faithful to the vision God has given us to live out? And finally, will I come to the God of the impossible? Really, I think none of those questions are answerable without that last one. Only he can do it. Whatever we face in our life, whatever impossible situation we might see, he is the God of the impossible, and he can empower us to live the way he wants us to live. That's all I have to... Thank you for listening to this podcast by Lifeline Church. We hope this message has been an encouragement to you. We are a relational church with a passion to demonstrate God's love to one another and our surrounding community in real and practical ways. We believe that God has called us to have an impact on our families, our communities and our nation. We'd love to connect further with you, so please do visit our website at lifelinechurch.co.uk on Facebook, lifeline.church.uk or Twitter at Lifeline UK.